Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Freitas, the host of Making the Argument, is back in the studio with us after having a great session that we're going to learn a lot about today. So I'm going to hand it right over to Nick. So I'm back, or am I? Is this just careful video editing by Hamilton? In fact, have I ever really been here? The answer is yeah, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually right here. <laughs> he's good, but he's not that good, people. No, listen, it is a it is an absolute pleasure to be back in the studio. I'm sorry I've been gone for so long. Thank you for your patience. In fact, some of you might be like, actually, we kind of liked it better with you. You're not there. You're better. You're better. You got a uh, face for radio, Nick. We're, we're, we're going to have a segment of the audience that's going to be like, who's this Nick guy? Yeah. I, thought, I, I thought I was making the argument with Nick Hamilton. We, we're introducing in today's episode, we're introducing a new guest on today's episode. <laughs> A new Nick. A new Nick. Well, listen, uh, today what we wanted to go over is obviously a lot of stuff happened in session, and we were trying to think about, like, how do we tie in some of the stuff that I witnessed down in Richmond during this last legislative session, especially uh, within my capacity as being on the um, education committee, and what is going on within our school system right now? Because so much of the talk that we hear about... Um, What's going on within education? We've heard about CRT. We've heard about some of the like the reading materials within our schools. We've heard about some of the practices that were going on in schools, not just in Northern Virginia, but all across the country. Uh, and then we also hear movements with respect to greater school choice. And what all, what does that mean? And what I found interesting is that I would put information out on Twitter about what was going on in session, and I would have people that who were not big fans of mine, right, predominantly from the left, come out, and their statement was not no, no, this is good, or this is why we want this. Their statement, more often than not, was, you're lying, that's not happening. So I decided this would be a great session to go over five examples, five examples of bills that were, we did not make this up. These are bills. We brought evidence. We heard testimony. We had votes in subcommittee, full committee, the floor. They went over to the Senate, right? We're going to talk about all this right now. So at the very least, you can agree, you can disagree, but you don't get to tell me it didn't happen, right? Because there's public record of all of this, and that is what we're going to go on today. Five five ways to prove that all this discussion that we've been having about the indoctrination within schools, what's going on in your schools, is actually taking place. Real quick before we get into it, Nick, we have a lot of folks that are outside of Virginia listening to the show. Can you give us a bit of context into what the General Assembly is, how long you've been there, what committees you're on, sure, and just a little backstory on so, that? So for those of you that, that don't know, I serve in the Virginia General Assembly, what's called the uh, House of Delegates. So we have our Virginia Senate, we have the House of Delegates, longest continuous serving legislative body within the Western Hemisphere, over 400 years old. I actually represent James Madison's district. That's right. They started off with uh, James, and now they've got me. It's... Uh, was not an improvement. An upgrade. It was not an upgrade. <laughs> an, it was upgrade. Not an upgrade. But I, I serve on I serve on four committees. I serve on the Public Safety Committee, the Finance Committee, the Courts of Justice Committee, and the Education Committee. And I lobbied for years to get on the Education Committee. So these last two years, I, I've I've really enjoyed it. I serve as the subcommittee chair for higher education. That's been fun. Now, what um, what 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 happens in that role? Like what? So what so takes let me place? let me kind of explain real quick. And and this is going on for anybody that's listening to this, thinking I don't live in Virginia. Why does it matter? Pretty much all of your legislatures within Virginia have certain common operating practices. And the bills that we're seeing in Virginia have been seen and heard in multiple other states, right? So so most of your state legislatures are what we call part-time legislatures. They're not full-time. There's only about four that are full-time, places like California, Pennsylvania. Most, your legislators go down, usually starts sometime in January, and they're there for anywhere from 45 to maybe like 90 or 120 days. And that's where they do all the legislation for the year, right? Now, in some places like Texas, it's only once every two years. But that that's what happens. And, and the bills that we're going to talk about, there is not a single bill with maybe one exception that was not something that was heard in another state or has been part of a national conversation about what is going on uh, with with the status of our education. So I went down there as a um, you know as, as a member of a committee, what most people don't understand about the, the way the committee process works is they'll hear, oh my gosh, you're gonna hear 2,000 bills in 45 days. Okay, technically that's true that maybe 2,000 bills were submitted, but then they get they get allocated out to the various committees based off of the the context of the legislation. And once they get to a committee, they get sent to a subcommittee. So a subcommittee might have like seven to nine members on it. And most of your legislation, most of the legislation dies in a subcommittee. 
Now, that's that's not because of some evil, nefarious purpose. It's just about time management, right? If your bill can't get out of a subcommittee, well, then the odds that it would get out of the whole House and go to the Senate are very low. And so that's the structure that we use to kind of vet bills before the whole House votes on it. But usually by the time a bill gets to the House floor, there's about a 95% chance that bill is passing. Wow, okay. Right? So anyway, so as a subcommittee chair, um, you know, there's there's various things. Your job is to run that subcommittee, right? So you look at your bill docket, you look at the things that are getting to assign to it. Um, you know, you might talk with other members of the subcommittee on what they think, on whether or not we're going to need potential amendments, things like that, whether or not we like just all hate the bill. But ultimately, like our commitment has always been you you allow people to come and testify. That is where um, the popular that is where the public shows up to testify. They usually don't even show up to testify at full committee. It's usually subcommittee. That's when people invite guests, they invite experts, and that panel of legislators gets to sit, listen to all the testimony for that bill, and then decide whether or not they're going to recommend it goes up to the full committee and it goes through the rest of the process. So is that a good enough? Absolutely. Okay. So what sort of like legislation, and I've been following this, I mean, closer than probably anybody other than the actual delegates and senators themselves, but you mentioned there's thousands of bills that come up every yeah. single year. So. And, and I know that you wanted to get into this in today's episode. Like, what sort of bills do you think popped up this year that are playing out similar issues that are playing out in other states all over the country? Uh, school school choice was a big one. Um, abortion was a big one. Gun uh, guns are always uh, guns and abortion are two issues that always come up and, and that that are always kind of prominent as some of the more controversial bills because there's usually such a divergence with respect to where we are on the issue. Um, and, and we saw that we saw that this year as well. I mean, it, it, it was incredible. You, it, it's incredible to me that that I, I watched some of my Democrat colleagues get on the floor, especially on the abortion issue, and and literally say that like if we didn't pass their constitutional amendment to enshrine a right to abortion up to the ninth month of pregnant up to birth, right, that women were going to die. And and I got on the floor and I said, okay, you realize France has a fourteen week like limit on, on just like purely elective abortion. So we, we got into some of these, some of these issues where again, their argument was, is that if, if we didn't have guaranteed abortion enshrined in the Virginia constitution, all the way up to the point of birth for whatever reason you want, well then, then women were going to die and we all wanted to oppress women. And that way. and then when we came back and we said things like, okay, that's your position. And I tweeted out, Democrats have said they want a constitutional amendment that enshrines abortion up to the point of birth for every reason. What was the response from the left? You're a liar. That's not what they want, really, because I'm reading it, and, and that's what it does. That, that's what it does. Okay, now, by, by contrast, in the Republican side, we had disagreement on what our position is. I'm a life at conception guy. I'm, I'm a life at conception guy. Uh, I, don't, I don't hide that. But the bill that I had that actually made it to the floor was the Born Alive Act. That was an abortion's attempted. The baby survives. What do we do now? And I said, well, in that case, what you do now is you provide medical care, right? Not one Democrat voted for that. Yeah. Not provide medical care to this one, alive human being. Not one voted for that. So just keep in mind when you hear all these extreme things about us, right? And, and when we tell you what they're actually, what they put, like, again, there was bills on life I would have liked to see get to the floor that didn't get to the floor because we disagreed on the Republican side on what was appropriate. But every single Democrat advocated and voted to, to get, to get a, 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 a resolution which would have been a constitutional amendment to the floor that would have allowed abortion for any reason up to the point of birth. Now, these are the same people that also tell us that healthcare is a right. Yeah. Well, so look, I, I just want to make, I, I, I don't mean to go off on a different tangent here. I know we're going to talk about education, but it, it's, it's relevant for the overall discussion we have. So guns was an issue. Uh, and I serve as the chairman. Uh, I'm the subcommittee chairman on public safety that hears all of the gun legislation. We actually had a really interesting, really interesting moment because uh, state Senator, the pro tempore of Virginia, Louise Lucas, she lined up a whole bunch of Republican bills before her committee, killed them without testimony. Like the patron did not even get to go up and say, this is what my bill does. She said, well, no, your bill was close to something we heard in the Senate already. So we're not even going to hear you. Even if you had amendments, even if you had changes, didn't matter. So, which is totally inappropriate. We never conduct business that way. Even if you don't think there's a good chance their bill is going to survive, you still at least allow the patron of the, of the bill to come up and make their argument. You know, you give them a couple minutes. Didn't even do that. Later in the day, I was a subcommittee chairman. 
And four Democrats had bills that were similar or identical to bills we had already killed in the House. And so I said, all right, if this is going to be the new practice within the Virginia General Assembly, then I'm going to go ahead and apply the Lucas rule. And patrons for, you know, SB, da, 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 we're now going to vote on your bills without any testimony. Killed all of them. And one of my Democrat colleagues in the House said, you know, Delegate Freitas, I don't think this is appropriate. We should rise to a higher level. And I explained to him, I was like, and because he's a good guy, Delegate Jenkins. I said, Delegate Jenkins, I certainly understand that. The problem is, is that this body doesn't work unless respect is reciprocated. And the only way that I can signify to them that we will not tolerate this, that just as their bills should be heard, so should ours, is to subject them to the rules they are subjecting to us in the hopes that the one person that is implementing this policy on the Senate side will change the way she's doing business. And that ended up being that ended up kind of blowing up in the press a little bit. But the Senate started being a little bit nicer, and so we were able to be nicer and kumbaya, right? Anyway, you want me to get into these five now? Absolutely. Give right. us those five. So let's get into the five. The first one I want to talk about, and this is the one that probably uh, engendered the most media attention in Virginia this cycle, was a bill carried by Delegate Tim Anderson from Virginia Beach, and it had to do with explicit materials in our schools. So the book was, or the bill was HB 1379. The title is Public Elementary and Secondary School Libraries Catalog of Printed and Audiovisual Materials. Here's why this bill was important. As you've seen through countless, you know, Instagram reels or TikToks or whatever else, you've always seen these parents getting up at school board meetings and saying, I'm going to show you a book that was in my child's library, school library, not public, li school library, right? I'm going to show you. And then you'll see the parents start to read it off. And then what happens? The school board shuts them down because that sort of language or that sort of topic discussion is not appropriate for a public school board meeting. Apparently, it's perfectly fine for your kids like freshman year of high school or in some cases, middle high. school library, but it's not appropriate for a bunch of adults to hear it. So Delegate Anderson brought this bill and he, he didn't just bring the bill. Oh, he brought the receipts. He bought Didn't he check out books from? He brought printouts yeah. from six different books. He didn't even go into some of the ones that we've all heard about. Like, like I think gender queer is one that's real. I don't think he even talked about that one or lawn boy. I think it was lawn boy, but he brought out pictures from each one of these. And on the house floor where they couldn't shut anything down, he proceeded to inform parents on what was actually within their school libraries. Now, before he did this, this was interesting. He requested that the house pages. Now the page program is, is 13 and 14 year olds that come down for the general assembly session. It's over a hundred year old program. And, and they essentially, you know, uh, assist with the clerk's office in the House of Delegates. He requested that they be that they be dismissed from the floor before he proceeded to do this because he was showing some, you know, respect and decorum. And then he proceeds to go off and show books where they were glorifying students, murdering their, shooting their teacher, where um, young girls were being raped by old men, and and I'm not just talking about literature where you're Graphic. reading this. Graphic novels with pictures that depicted everything going on, like to, to include, you know, again, parents, if you're listening to this with your kids, this might be a good point to kind of, you know, mute. Fully engage in intercourse, in oral sex. And, and in some cases, it was minors with adults. And he go, here's the picture. Here's the school it was in. How was that moment on the floor? Oh, we had members of the floor on the getting up and leaving the room, getting up and leaving the leaving the. Oh yeah, they're so. I'm not. Was, I'm not going to ask you to name names, but how many do you think got up I, and I, left? I don't. I I I don't know the total number, but it was interesting. They were they was they were starting to get up and leave, and then after that portion was done, we had the floor debate, and Delegate Converse Fowler got up and proceeded to just read Delegate Anderson the Riot Act, and so. Will the delegate yield for a question? Delegate Converse Fowler, do you think it was appropriate that we dismissed the pages before he proceeded to read all of that? Her answer was, no, I think it would have been fine if they would have stayed. Her daughter accompanied her to the, to the General Assembly some days. So it was like, no, she thought it was fine for 13 and 14-year-olds to be present while Delegate Tim Anderson proceeded to read off things that were and currently are, based on the book, in public school libraries, right? Again, images and word depicting sex, and in some cases, rape, 
and in some cases murdering a teacher. And delegate Converse Fowler was like, oh, that's, they're I, perfectly it would, okay it with it. Been fine for the, now, when I go out and I say, hey, these books and these pictures and these images and this content is in your kid's school library, the response I overwhelmingly get from Democrats on my social media pages is, no, it isn't. You're lying. You're just a book burner. We said, and now here is the great part. Yeah, you want you just want to ban books. You don't respect the First Amendment. You're a book burner. So let's look at what his bill did, because does did his bill say, okay, look, here's all this, here's all this horribly graphic material, totally inappropriate for your freshman daughter. So let's ban it. Nope, his bill didn't even ban it. All it did was say requires the principal of each public or elementary or secondary school or his designee to maintain in an electronic spreadsheet or a substantially similar electronic format a catalog of all printed and audiovisual materials as defined in the bill that are contained in the school library. Right? And then he provided an opt-out so if you didn't want your child checking out those books, you can, you can mark that off, and then when they go up to check out a book, the librarian can say, I'm sorry, your parent is not authorized to check that. That's what the bill did. Guess how many Democrats voted for it? Zero. Zero. I had a Democrat tell me on the elevator, Nick, nobody wants these books within the, the classroom, but what Delegate Anderson did was inappropriate. And I said, well, if it's inappropriate for us to hear it on the House floor, why is it appropriate for a high schooler? And, and I said, and to be perfectly honest, I don't think nobody wants those books within our school. Somebody obviously did because they ordered them and shelved them. Oh, we're yeah, still yeah. Who at, did that? We're still at the nobody wants this phase. Nobody of the wants discussion. this phase. And I said, but you know what? We're going to see on the floor. Yep. Not one Democrat voted to just let the parents know they were there and given an opt out version. Which no banning, no burning, none of the other crap that we're always told about. Not one of them. You don't get to tell me it's not happening. And you sure as hell don't get to tell me. You, you don't, that, you that don't approve of it. Nobody wants this. Yeah. Yes, you do. You just put your name on the board. So yes, you do. Why do. So here's the the other side of this question is, and this is the part where we get in questioning intentions, right? Because I, I usually I usually try to rationalize in my own mind, okay, why would somebody vote against this? Okay, maybe they thought it was too onerous on the schools. Maybe they thought it was an unfunded mandate. Maybe they would have gone about it a little bit differently. Maybe they maybe they would or maybe some people just like the idea of kids being exposed to this sort of material at a very, very young age because within their worldview, kids are not sexualized enough. Now, do I believe that of all of my colleagues? No, I do not. Do I believe it of some of them? Yeah, I'm starting to get suspicious because I don't understand. I don't understand what was so horrible about this bill that we couldn't get one Democrat to say, you know what? Letting the parents know and having a cow, I mean, that seems reasonable. Can can I offer a, a but, but we're the bad guys. Keep in mind, we're the bad guys. We're the hysterical ones. We're the You're mean the book ones. Burners, we're even the book burners, even though you don't want to burn any books. You're authoritarians. No, I, I I've I've heard all of that, and anybody that probably watches this show has has probably gotten some experience of being called that or accused of that from the left as well. I think there's one other potential um, motivation behind why everybody in the Democrat caucus voted against this and why you see Democrats in other states that, I mean, there's other states out there that have had this issue too. This was a huge issue in Florida recently. And what I think is happening partially, this might not explain everything, but partially is that there's this bias that exists where when you feel like that, here's an example. In the 1960s, um, there's actually been some academic studies on this. In the 1960s, the average Southerner was not actually in favor of segregation. The average so Southerner was actually ambivalent on the issue. They didn't necessarily take an issue on it in their state house or at the federal level. They, they had other stuff going on in their lives. The average white Southerner in the 1960s was not pro-segregation. That doesn't mean the average Southerner was, was pro-integration or yeah. pro-MLK, but they were not on board with the, the you know, Harry Bird crowd, you know, the... Um, the, you know, the, the, the clan and stuff like that. They were not pro segregationists, but they thought their neighbor was. Yeah. And so a lot of Southerners, a lot of white Southerners pretended to be pro segregationist or refused to speak up against segregationist policies because they thought their neighbors, their church go, you know, members, their community around them 
supported this. And so they pretended to go along with it. It was this uh, this mass delusion well, where it was like the emperor had no clothes, but nobody was willing to to speak up about it. What I what I see on the left, and I also see this on the right sometimes too, yeah. is that because the left has this idea that, well, our base wants this, reasonable people that get elected to office as a Democrat who don't actually personally take an issue on this, or they might even personally agree with us on the yeah. issue, but instead they say, well, you know, my constituents probably support this. I have to vote with this or else I'm going to get primaried or I'm going to get thrown out of office or I'm going to get a bunch of people in my district that are going to get upset at me. Yeah. So then you're going to vote this way. There's so many, you cannot tell me that the majority of the Democrat caucus, there's some people that do agree with this, but you cannot tell me a majority of the Democrat caucus, even in our state, genuinely genuinely believe, for example, that men can be women. No. But they will never, ever publicly say that because they're smart enough to know that from their point of view, they would get punished within their own party yeah. if they if they stood up in favor of common sense. There, there's an intellectual inertia that takes place where it, it is more comfortable to go along with the narrative than it is to stand up and risk being ostracized if you challenge it. And, and that's what I think a lot of my, I, I think the vast majority of my colleagues in the House that either didn't vote at all, there was a few that just didn't vote, but none of them voted for it. I think there were several that, that somehow justified in their own minds that, well, there's a better way to go about doing this and parents should just be more involved. Right. And then there's, but the, the question is, is okay, but how did they get there in the first place? Like how did this book, which the vast majority of people would agree is inappropriate. How did it get there in the first place? Somebody does want it there. And that somebody has a lot more power than the average voter because whoever that is or whoever that group of people it is or whoever that organization is, they had more sway with my Democrat colleagues than I'm willing to bet the vast majority of parents within their district. And, and, and part of this is because they will tie it to like LGBTQ because some of the books like Gender Queer or Lawn Boy or some of those have an LG. Some of the other books did not. Like there, there was a graphic novel version of The Handmaid's Tale that is the one that showed, again, depicted pictures of you know a, a man raping a young girl. Right as as part of that, okay. Well, that fits into a narrative they actually agree with, right? That a, a bunch of you know Christians want to you know oppress women, but a lot of these other books, it falls within certain categories to where I think they feel that if I attack this or if if I push back against this, it's going to be categorized as anti LGBTQ, and they know they know very well they can't touch that. It's amazing to me that they would rather be called a groomer and rather display, uh, you know behavior that looks like grooming than to stand up and well, I, actually, I, this, this know, goes back and we're, and we're going to do, we're going to, we've promised Christian, we're going to dedicate a whole podcast to postmodernism, right? So just so he doesn't have to say it again, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but we're, we are, we are going to go back and we are going to talk about, okay, what, what is the, what is the larger worldview that informs these sorts of decisions. Because if you're just looking at it going, this is outrageous, it's stupid. It's, this is why so many people look at this and go like, that can't be true. That can't be true. Who could possibly, people believe it and there's a reason why. I don't think it's a good reason. I think it's horrible reasons. And it's not only, it's not always the reasons people say like, oh, you're a groomer. Believe me, there's a lot of people that believe in this that don't necessarily want to touch anybody's kids, but somehow they were going along with this sort of agenda. And we're going to get into a, a deeper reason why that is. I want to, can I, did you have a question or you want me to go on to the second bill? Uh, before you go on to the second bill, do parents with kids in public schools re have the ability now to go into the library and say, please don't allow my child to check out this book? So yeah, theoretically they could, the, the problem is here, here's the problem with, with, without parents knowing what's in their school library, what do, what do they say? Hey, I don't want my kid to check out anything that has sexually explicit material. Okay, the Bible. Well, that's typically not what the parent means, like the, the Quran. That's typically not what the parent means. The parent means something like this, where it's actually depicting sexual right. acts and all this other stuff in a very, very graphic and detailed way. But if, if I don't know what the titles are, then how do I tell you what I don't want my kid? Sure. And, and then the library can look back and be like, well, I don't know what, what that would include, and so how do I comply with it? So that's what he was trying to do is that Tim Anderson recognized that there, there are certain things that theoretically could be categorized as sexually explicit, right? But that nobody's really after because we all understand there's a distinction. And then there's stuff like this 
which is much more deliberate and has an agenda. It's it's not as if, you know, again, when certain books mention a particular, you know, episode or event, like where a rape takes place or something like that, the whole purpose of the book is not the sexual act. Well, some of these other books, that was a huge component of the book itself. It was describing and, and explaining like that was a, a main part of the purpose of the book. But if you don't have, parents don't have a mechanism for understanding what's there, unless they go in and what, check the entire library catalog. And even then, some books are going to be named in ways that don't necessarily, when you hear Handmaid's Tale, you may like that story, you may not like that story. You certainly don't think it's a graphic novel depicting sexual acts that now your, your ninth grader is going to be able to check out. All right, so all of that takes us into point two. So the first one had to do with ex sexually explicit materials within in uh, schools in Virginia which is a purple state. They weren't even trying to ban it. They were just trying to get parental notification and an easy way for parents to be notified. Couldn't get a single Democrat to vote for it. Next was HB 1387, K through 12 schools and higher institutions designation of interscholastic sports based on sex. This is the protect women's sports bill, right? We had a couple of different uh, people that dropped this. This is a fun one. Oh, Karen Greenhall. Um, I'll tell you what. Um, this came before my subcommittee. Now I want I want to give you a I want to give you a quick aside here, which is kind of important because obviously this was going to be a very controversial bill. Um, th there was a lot of people that showed up to testify for it. Um, I actually there was there is a there is an organization in Virginia that decided to send out an email to everyone going, "You need to tell Delegate Freitas to hear this bill and ask him why he hasn't heard it yet." I, like I was a co-patron of the bill. The reason why we hadn't heard it yet is because the patron came to me and said, "Hey." Can we hear this next week instead of this week so I can get all the people that are coming to testify? Yeah, sure. So just be careful about some of the groups out there that want to pretend to be conservative, but in reality are just really good at making money. All right. So anyways, this bill comes up and, and this bill, again, it went through the whole process of essentially saying that if you're going to compete in women's sports, you got to be a biological woman. And, and the whole mechanism for how do you how do you determine that? goes into, because some people say, oh, we're going to use birth certificates. All right, well, what if they change the birth certificate? Well, you got to use the original birth certificates. All right, well, what if you can get the original birth certificate changed, right? And then, so Karen said, well, typically when kids compete in, in high school sports, they have to go through a physical. At that physical, you know, it, it'll be determined what your biological sex is, and then that determines what sports you're allowed to compete in. And so I, I thought that actually kind of, you know, made sense with what they were trying to do. And, um, and they tried to put in certain protections. Obviously, there's cases where, you know, women compete in men's sports, and that wasn't what she was necessarily trying to do, but she was, she was trying to protect women's sports because we, we now have quite a few examples of men who were barely ranked or were ranked, like, in the hundreds coming in and then dominating in women's sports. And this isn't just a simple question of, you know, hey, is that unfair for the actual sporting event? No, for... For some kids, like this could mean scholarships. This could mean other opportunities. This could mean things that they work for their entire life. Where now someone like Leah Thomas shows up and says, I'm, I'm a, yeah, I know I was ranked like way down when the men's sporting, but now I, I want to compete in the women's and now I'm going to be ranked number one. And we, one of the people that actually came in and testified was Riley Gaines, who actually tied Leah Thomas in, in one of these events. And when she tied him, uh, the NCAA came over and said, yeah, you guys both get the trophy, but Leah's going to hold it. Leah's going to be the one that, and, and Riley was like, wait a second. Like I, uh, we've worked all of our life for this. He was ranked. I forget what he was ranked. I think it was in the hundreds before. Now he comes over and, and dominates and he's going to be the one you put out front. Like this seems completely antithetical to what the NCAA and everyone else says about trying to lift up women's sports. And, and this becomes, I think this becomes, there was a lot of people that trashed Karen for, well, you should have just done it in higher ed. Why did you do it in high school? Because they get the scholarships in high school, right? This has, this has an effect. And, and Riley Gaines also mentioned something too that I, I, I think a lot of people weren't aware of, and that is Leah Thomas, right? Female Lima is a fully intact male, right? He, he's still got all the equipment. Well, he went over to the women's locker room, right? Because that was NCAA policy. One of and got undressed in front of all of them, and they had no idea this was coming. Like got undressed in front of all of them, and looked at them while they got undressed. And and she talked about how this was really uncomfortable. And it wasn't just Riley. We had multiple women show up talking about how this is something that it, it infringes on their ability to get different academic opportunities, different sporting opportunities, um, and and. All races, right? It's not like it was just a bunch of like rich white girls that got up, all right? It was it was women from different backgrounds, 
uh, different races represented, uh, different instances, different experiences. I didn't expect my Democrat colleagues to vote for the bill. But I also didn't expect for them to treat the witnesses the way they did to the point where I actually had to, like, because again, I was a subcommittee chair. I actually had to gavel down and say, the next time I hear one of the colleagues question the intentions of the people that have gotten up to testify for this bill, I'm going to shut you down immediately. Because it wasn't, I understand the concerns that Riley and the other women that have got up to testify of concern, but I also understand the concerns of, of the transgender community and you know, being worried about how this could potentially, it, that wasn't the argument. It was, I don't know why these people are so motivated by hatred and bigotry. I don't know why. It, are they just looking for someone to pick on? Can you remind the audience what that bill number was again? Yeah. Let me put um, it up here. Because it was I a, would, HB 1387. If, if this committee meeting was, I did not get to see this committee meeting, but there's an archive yeah. of every single committee meeting that's hosted on uh, the Virginia General Assembly website. So for those in the audience that care about this issue, and even if they don't live in Virginia, but they want to get a taste of how their Democrat politicians in their state talk about issues like this, oh, yeah. I'd love for them to I, actually two, watch two, that committee two, meeting. Two Democrats, essentially, when they when it came turn to speak to the bill, and that's their opportunity to just kind of talk about their feelings on the bill, it wasn't good enough for them to just say, hey, I think this was really important to protect, you know, kids with gender dysphoria or to protect kids or to make sure they can participate. No, that if they would have given that argument, I would have disagreed with their overall reasoning as to the importance of the bill. But no, it was, it was essentially accusing anybody that would support something like this of being bigoted, of wanting to pick on trans kids, right? That was it. That's the only possible motivation. And you're a turf, right? Yeah. It, it, it couldn't be that it couldn't be that lo and behold, women don't like getting undressed in front of men in their locker rooms. Well, and you think about it, they all push this narrative that one in four women has been sexually assaulted in her life. If that is true of a locker room full of girls, how many of those girls are now being forced to undress in the presence of a biological male yeah. and they're ha they have to either see or be seen? Yeah. And, and if you don't like how it, many women are going to get triggered by this, but you're a bigot for getting triggered now. Yeah. I mean, how unsafe do they want women to be at this point? Well, so unsafe that you see situations now in the United States. There's another one up in Scotland right now where they've actually put men convicted of rape in women's prisons because they claim to be women. And J.K. Rowling speaks out against this and then gets death threats yeah. for it. Keep in mind, Rowling is not a conservative. No, not She's at all. She's an old yeah. school feminist. She used yeah. to be, she stopped, I believe she but stopped like, doing this now, but she used to be a huge donor to the Labor Party until yeah. they basically told her to go take a hike and she was like, okay, fine. Um, but it, we're talking about prisons here and we're talking about like, oh, these college sports. But here in Virginia, a girl was raped in a bathroom by a, a transgender male. And Didn't it actually happen multiple it, times? He went on. They they covered it up. The school covered mm -hmm. it up because they were so worried about trans people. And to the point where they're like, oh, this is just a boy in a skirt. It's not real trans. Are you kidding? This person walks around as a trans person all the time. Why are they not real trans oh. now? And then they go. No to true the, Scotsman. <laughs> then this guy goes to the next school. And what happens? Oh, he assaults another girl in the bathroom. Well, it was in a classroom, but yeah. Oh, in a classroom. Okay. Well, well and, and they want to sit here and wonder why we were all fighting against having biological males in the bathroom with girls. Well, and then part of the issue, too, is when this moved onto the floor, we had the floor debate. Delegate Danica Rome, who's the first transgender elected to a state state legislature uh, proceeded to talk about all the problems that the delegate had with the bill. And right. And some of that had to do with things like, well, it says biological sex. Where in the code does it say biological sex? And, it, and it's amazing as if I, I love how none of us know what biological sex is until we got to the abortion debate. And then all of them remembered what biological sex was because yeah. they were wondering why a man was talking about it. But anyways, um, and, and the, the question was, and the other thing too, that I think is interesting about this is they kept trying to make this argument that, well, when they're taking the puberty blockers and they're taking other things that lowers the rate of testosterone and, and it interrupts puberty enough to where they don't have the same advantage over boy. It's like, okay, you've just acknowledged that if we allow human beings to develop naturally, there is a competitive physical advantage between men and women. Thanks for that acknowledgement. Secondly, you're now essentially encouraging puberty blockers at a much earlier age in order to justify your participation within these sports, right? That's, that's the, that's the, un, that's the story that accidentally got let out as you're arguing for one thing and you actually prove. Right. They're basically saying, along. Oh, don't worry. We're chemically castrating them anyway. They can't hurt the girls. Pretty much. 
pretty much. But but again, it was it was a complete lack of regard on display for the like I, I want to say it was something like 15 women that got up to testify on why they thought this was necessary. And and if you if you thought, if you thought that the Democratic Party was the party of women, I encourage you to watch how they ended up getting treated when when two Democrats got up and decided to speak on the bill. Because I will tell you right now, the concerns for those women were just not present at all. Not present at all. And if you disagreed with any of this or if you had any concerns with respect to what I think is inappropriate to make men and women undress in front of one another in a situation where they don't want to, right? whether it's something like that, where it's something about the academic opportunities that come from these scholarships to institutions of higher education, whether it comes to just basic fairness within a competitive environment, right? none of that was regarded. None of it. And, and the other thing, too, that I thought was interesting, and, and Delegate Rome brought this up, it's like, well, they already have processes in place to distinguish between someone who's really trans and, and who is maybe just faking it to get on the sports team. How do you distinguish between those two things? Literally, I want to know, what is the criteria? What it, Do they got to wear a dress? Because now you're saying that, oh, womanhood has nothing to do with your biology, but it has everything to do with your outfit. It's a costume now? Or, or is it, or, or aren't you guys also the ones that say that gender is fluid? So maybe they were male right now, but maybe they were field just for the purposes of the competition. And now they're male. Are you going to, are you going to deny their lived experience and their deep psychological belief that they're gender fluid? And so it changed over time. Or are you just going to arbitrarily say that at this point they don't get to compete because we don't really think you're genuinely trans and which government official gets to make that determination? Well, they used to, they used to say, Oh, you're conflating gender with biological yeah. sex. They don't even... Well, now they're like, well, no, no, no. Uh, we're, you could be female and trans. Yeah. You can be a trans female. And well, I'm sorry, isn't female yeah. and male the biological sex and woman and man is the gender? Why are we now why are we now lumping it all together? Oh, is it because you were lying before yes. when you said there was a difference? There is no yeah. difference between male and man and female and woman. No. You you can say one thing's more feminine and one thing's less feminine. Yeah. Sure. But one's it, more manly, one's less manly. How, how many people in America do you would would we guesstimate are trans? So I, I would say like five years ago it would have been like point zero zero two percent of the population. With Gen Z it's uh, gone Gen, through the roof. With Gen Z it's it's increased twenty fold within the last ten years. Mm. All right, so that was that was the uh, protecting women's sports legislation. Um, you know, a, a, again, I, I didn't expect my Democrat colleagues to vote for this because they 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 are all in on on the LGBTQ side of this, and they feel like any sort of any sort of protection at this point is just turfing. Um, but I, I didn't expect them to display Victim that. Shame. Sort of, I didn't explain expect them to display that sort of like hostility toward people that were testifying because again, what we found over and over again, and I found this in other discussions I had during session, when they're talking about lived experience, that's all that matters. You can throw out all the empirical data. You can throw out, it doesn't matter. The lived experience is paramount. When we talk about lived experience, that doesn't count. I've got a, I've got a question before we move on to the next yeah. uh, topic. Just, what do you think would happen, Nick, if conservatives never said anything about this issue? So... This this would become there, there'd be no distinction whatsoever with respect to any of our sports programs or, or or any of this stuff, and the idea is because you have some conservatives that think, look, who cares? Let them do what they want to do. Mm. You need to understand this is <laughs> they're revolutionaries in the sense that the revolution never goes away; it just finds a different target. And, and and that's why I've said publicly before, and I took some heat for it, and I don't care. But I've said publicly before; I'll say it publicly again. I think it was two years ago I said within five years we're going to we're going to hear the same we're going to hear the left start to say it's not pedophile it's minor attracted persons and They're I don't already mean, saying I, it wait a second I don't mean some college professor somewhere I mean that's going to start to become part of the common vernacular within prominent members on the left not just some wacko and you know a university that will start to become popular vernacular. It will be started to be treated like something like, well, we need to treat this. We need to understand it. We need to really approach it from a, an academic and analytical viewpoint. And then it'll get to be the point where, well, this is a choice and people mature at different ages. And, you know, uh, maturity is a social construct, right? We know age is, age is not, but, so, but maturity is. And different people mature. Guaranteed. And you know what they'll arguments. use to back it up? 
they will use things like learning disabilities to back it up or cognitive abilities to back it up, right? Because there there are people that are in their 30s or 40s or 50s, but you know, they suffer from like yeah. brain damage or something like that. And so they have the cognitive abilities of somebody that's a kid. Oh, and after right? a while they'll use religious reasons. They'll use that this is an exercise of religious faith. And that's why this 12 year old needs to, I mean, just, I'm telling you, that's the way it's going to be. That's what happens when you don't, when you don't fight back on the objective criteria that we've, we've always used to be able to distinguish these things. Um, then what ends up happening in this, again, this is a postmodernist, this is a critical theory uh, approach to all of this, is that it's essentially all social constructs and therefore it's completely up to interpretation of whatever you want. There is no overriding moral imperative other than the self-actualization and the equity or equality agenda. That's it. Man, I can't wait for that postmodernist episode. You just gave the audience like a sneak peek into the yeah. the the thing that drives, um, you know, re really the intellectual engine behind all of yeah. this and it you said something earlier about how like it doesn't matter what sort of data you can give them it's all about lived experiences but understand that some lived experiences are worth more in the eyes of the left than others based on your status on that victimhood yeah, to oppressor to oppressed category right so my lived experiences as a white male living in the united states heterosexual white as male. a heterosexual cisgender white male yeah. living in the united states is really down their list in terms of priority but you can check off absolutely every box they have and the minute you're a conservative or a republican it's all, oh, oh, all gone. That, I, I left that out too. Heterosexual, um, cisgender, white male, conservative, living in the South too. <laughs> um, th that drops yeah. it to like almost well, rock bottom in their category. Like I, I, got, I, got, I got three more bills I'm going to go through. I'm going to take two of these together. One had to do with the Virginia Education Savings Account Program. This was very similar to what you've seen in places like Arizona, New Hampshire, where they're basically, it's dollars following students. If you follow, you know, De Angelis and, and those guys. That's what we were trying to do. I had a bill drafted for this. Phil Scott had a bill for this. Glenn Davis had a bill for this. There was another bill that was drafted, but you know, quite frankly, not a lot of work had been put into it, and so it, it, it had some real problems. But this one, we couldn't get a single Democrat vote, and we actually struggled to get some Republican votes on this one. And really? so, yeah, and, and that that's frustrating. Yeah. But the but we kind of knew there was going to be some fights on that one. The vast majority of us were, were on board with some sort of dollars follow the students um, program. Now, I will say I had some people get mad at me like, why did you support this version instead of that version? I'm like, well, here's where we're at. That version had a $480 million fiscal impact, which means we wouldn't have been able to get out of appropriations because we wouldn't have been able to do the tax cuts or any of the other stuff we we're doing. Secondly, we actually have homeschool groups that oppose dollars following students unless you have some barriers in between homeschool and them. So the, the bill that ended up going forward or was supposed to go forward, got out of committee, was the one that said, um, if you leave public school, a certain portion of dollars will then follow you to where you go next. Well, a lot of people said, well, you just cut out private school kids and you just cut out homeschool kids. And I said, I, I get it. We want everybody to be able to participate. And technically you could. If you enrolled your kid in a public school for a semester, you could, you could then qualify and do the whole thing. But they would get mad at me like, oh, you're, you're being a squish on this. I'm like, no, I'm not because I need, I need a bill that we can all vote on. And we have major homeschool groups in Virginia that will not support this. They will, they will even go to the degree of showing up and testifying against it. And then I'm going to lose Republican votes on this. So this is the mechanism we have to go in order to get something in place. And then we can talk about what's the best way to implement it over time. But anyways, that one died. Can I clarify that real quick? Yeah. Had you gone with the perfect bill, yeah. it wouldn't have even had a chance to be voted on. It would not have even gotten out of subcommittee. Okay. It, it wouldn't even, in fact, it actually had an opportunity to testify in full committee, and it got torn to shreds because not only did it have this huge fiscal impact, but the patron hadn't even put in a budget amendment to cover the fiscal impact. Like it, it's just, it's just understood that if I say, Hey, I'm asking for $480 million, then I'm going to submit a budget amendment saying this legislation is going forward. And should it pass, here's my budget amendment to make sure that we can pay for it. Did it even do that? 
Like that's basic. And like, the whole reason that we have this process is because unlike the federal government, we have to balance the state budget every year. And this is the case budget. for the vast majority of states out there for the audience that's listening. That yeah. The good news is, is that when the inevitable debt crisis hits, the states will be relatively well off, except for the states that rely mostly on federal aid. But the... What 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 shocks me the most, and I think this is something that a lot of our audience members will get some value from, is that let's say that you listen to making the argument because you enjoy the way that Nick can break down many of these these issues, especially when the left tackles them on anything. It, it, it could be anything from life to guns to taxes to education, anything in between. The problem that we see a lot as conservative activists, and everybody who's at this table probably has had some experience on this. Nick has done this for years. I've seen this on both the legislative side and the political side for many, many years, is that there's so many cats to herd in a state house, so many different competing interest groups. And even when you're the most conservative person in the room, there's always some other group or organization that will come there that for whatever reason, yeah. they will oppose your bill, even if they're they're theoretically on your side. There's well, so many groups out there and they work in both directions. We've talked about this before. There's some groups out there that all that they want is just to make money. Yeah. And they will, they will present themselves as the most conservative people in the room, but they're actually doing damage to the cause in order to help themselves and make themselves seem like they're way further to the right of everybody else. And then there's, on the other hand, there's the, the squish groups yeah. that actually give cover to the bad guys yep. uh-huh. because they will never take a position on anything remotely controversial, but they have a bre- Here's an example for many years. This, uh, this varies by state, but but there's some states out there that for many years, the NRA was the one that was killing constitutional carry yep. for many, many years in, yeah. in certain states out there. They were the ones doing it. Now, in other states, the NRA was actually good. It varied by state yeah. chapter. Yeah, it's but, kind of on board. But now, th- that's just one example, right? So, so you have these like two issues within the conservative movement. When it comes to pushing good legislation, you have grifters on one hand and you have these like establishment fake conservatives on another hand. And in some ways, they work hand in hand to stop good legislation yeah. well, from being passed. And, and, and here's an interesting one because I got I got two more bills. I'm gonna go through this quick because these last two shouldn't be controversial. So the, the last the, the first three we did, I, I would argue that the first one on explicit material shouldn't be controversial, but evidently it was. The the second one I totally get. That's gonna that's probably gonna split along party lines. The third one I just talked about also split along party lines because the Democrats want the government to control education. The next two we have, the first one was Division Laboratory Schools. Glenn Davis had this, HB 2490. He he wanted something where we could remove some of the, the different barriers that we have and allow for greater innovation. And he recognized that the only way he could get like the Virginia Education Association and others to, to come in and help with this is that if he, he focused it pretty much almost entirely just on the public school system. So the government still has some sort of say, but he was going to allow for greater innovation within the lab schools. However, going through it, under his program, there were certain private institutions that already had existing contracts that he didn't want to mess with. And so he had to amend the bill, immediately lost support. I mean, he actually had a bill that the VEA was willing to get up and support because all the emphasis was put on public schools. And the moment he had to add, he had to allow for for some sort of private institutions to be able to participate as well. The VEA changed their mind, and the bill died in a subcommittee. You want to talk about bad groups on the left? I oh mean, my God. I, again, a lot of conservatives that are in office, you know, that they, they have personal examples of of you know having bad blood with groups on the right. But yeah. there's also groups that we haven't even talked about groups on the left. There, yeah. and and the left dominates these. There's only a handful of groups on the right. There's a million yeah. groups on the left, and they have way more power and money and influence and. Well, and, and, all of, and all of the, the thing you need to understand is that all of the groups with the most benign sounding names, right? Like when you, when you hear, when you, you hear know the what name, the phrase is, when you, the, wait a second, when you hear the name family foundation, you probably know that's a conservative group. When you hear the national rifle association or the Virginia citizens defense, League, you know, that's a conservative group. It's when the school board association backs every single left wing play. There's a, there's a quote. I don't know if it came from Morton Blackwell, but, but there was somebody that, that, um, from that network, you know, very conservative network here in Virginia. And I heard it at my previous job. There's this quote that has stuck with me for a long time, which is if the name does not, if there's not a conservative sounding word in the name of the organization, it's a left wing group. It, it's So, I, so, so a, yeah. a good example is, um, you know, an organization that I worked with for many years, not literally worked with, but worked alongside was National Association for Gun Rights. Pretty obvious yeah. they're on the right yeah. with the name, right? Yeah. 
VEA, Virginia Education Association, it's a benign name. The the advice that I will give you, and it doesn't work 100% of the time, but it works 90% of the time, is if the organization has a conservative word in the name, guns or life or something like that, Again, you need to verify and make sure they're not one sure. of those two bad groups that we talked about earlier. But they're probably at least presenting on the right. If they have a benign name and almost they, you know, Virginia, the they're almost always to a T to the left. Yeah. No, and, and that's, again, that, that's, I'm sorry, that's that's been my lived experience. <laughs> yeah. Vaco is right. another example. Oh, yeah. Virginia Association of Counties. Um, all right. Here's, another, here's the last one we're going to go over. And this is the one that I feel it honestly should have been the least offensive we had, I think, two or three Democrats that voted for it, um, but th- th- that's two or three out of 48, right? So here's what it was. <laughs> HB 2426, patron was me. Now here's I was waiting for us to get to your legislation. the bill did, all right? It said it prohibited any school board, public, elementary, or secondary school, including any joint or regional school, so we covered everybody, all right? <clears throat> from withholding merit, like so like the National Merit Scholarship, right? This is, this is a, a thing that goes on um, across the country. It, it's a very select group of students that actually get recognized by the National Merit Scholarship for academic excellence, right? So organizations like that, right, if they send something to the school, the school, and as soon as practicable, needs to give it to the student. That was the bill. Now, why was this necessary? Well, because we had 17 schools in Virginia, 17, to include Thomas Jefferson, which is one of the most, you know, like most accolades in Virginia with, with respect to a governor's school and everything else, that deliberately, deliberately kept National Merit Scholarship recognition from the students until after the deadline had come to submit their packets for college. Now, some colleges take into account National Merit Scholarships. Some do not. There's some universities that actually offer monetary scholarships if you made it in the National Merit Scholarship. And initially, we got the same. Nobody wants to withhold this, right? Nobody wants to withhold this. This this was a just mistake. Just an accident. This was just an accident. And, and there were. There was one school district, I, I think, um, that they legitimately came out and profusely apologized, said, this is not our policy. We, we apologize. We, we've put in measures to correct it. But Thomas Jefferson came out and actually said, after they'd gone through, they paid something like over $400,000 for equity training at the school. And then they, they came right out and said, well, we don't want to acknowledge students, but we want to see them as each as individuals. And we thought it would hurt the feelings of students that didn't qualify with the National Merit Society to, to make a, a big deal out of giving this over to the other students. So they held them back until after the deadlines, and then they gave them to the students. And parents got furious about that. There was, there was one parent um, in particular, I'm trying to, um, oh, where, where, while you're finding that whoever got paid to do that diversity training and equity training. Oh my gosh. Made a killing. Oh yeah. Yeah. $400,000. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, well used taxpayer funds. Yeah. Well, and and then, so the mother, uh, um, I I apologize if I get the name wrong, but Ashra uh, Nomani, she came up and she really, she really kind of blew this off on what had actually happened at TJ and how this was totally unfair to not only her student, but all the other students that had worked really hard to achieve this, who were denied that recognition, not because of a mistake. They were denied that recognition as a part of the equity policy, or at least the equity culture that was taking place at, at TJ High School. Now, as you can imagine, Ezra Nomani is, is not like a... a white Karen somewhere, but she got called by a member of the general assembly as a white supremacist. She literally was called that. Yes. In the meeting. No, 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 no. She wasn't called that directly in the meeting. We had it. We had a member of the the house of delegates. No, no. Member of the Senate, member of the Senate, Senate. member of the Senate described her protest against this as, as, as basically being motivated by white supremacy. Who said that? So let me get this, let me get this like just all out there. All right. Okay. A bill which said when the school gets notified and gets the certificates because National Merit Scholarship and some of these other ones send it directly to the school. They don't necessarily send it directly to the student or the parent. Yep. Your job, you can't withhold it. Is to give it to the is kid. Is to give it to the kid. That's the bill. That's the bill. Someone even asked, like, well, what's the punishment for this? I'm like, we didn't put one in. 
We just said that's this a was, really minor oh, bill. Super minor. Super minor. You know, in retrospect, since all the Democrats voted for uh, voted against it, we should have put a punishment in the we, bill. We got we got about I uh, no, I think there was a couple Democrats that voted for it. A couple Democrats that voted for it. The, the vast majority of Democrats in the House of Delegates voted for it, and then they immediately killed it on the Senate side. Not a single Democrat voted for it on the Senate side. So when we tell you, all right, when we tell you that no, the Democrats know these books are in the schools and they're okay with it, or they're at least not willing to do anything to, to make you better informed about it. When we tell you that they do want to be able to have men competing in women's sports and they think there's nothing wrong in that and you're a bigot if you disagree, when we do, when we tell you they don't mind if, if males undress in front of females in the high school locker room, when we tell you they don't want any sort of school choice that would allow any sort of private entity to be a part of it or you or the dollars to be able to follow your student at a different school. When we tell you that there is, in fact, opposition and a war on merit within your public schools to the extent that a school would refuse to pass along awards for academic excellence to the students to make sure that they can get them for their college filings. When we tell you this is happening, you can say you like it, you can say you don't like it, but you no longer get to tell me or anyone else it isn't happening because they had the opportunity to vote on it. They voted no in almost every single situation. And a majority of, and, and I don't mean a slim majority. I mean, like on a couple of these, we got onesies and twosies to split off. But in every other single case, they killed these bills. And then when they went over to the Senate, they made sure they never showed up to the governor's desk. So when Senator Louise Lucas gets up there all proud, talking about how she's the brick wall to anything coming over from that, this is what she means. Because everything I just listed, guess what committee it went to? Senate Ed and Health. Guess who the chairman of Senate Ed and Health is? It's Louise Lucas. So nobody gets to tell me anymore that they just were unaware, or they didn't know, or they didn't understand. And of course, nobody would want this. Either you do want it and you're lying to people or you completely lack any sort of, of courage or ability to get up and explain why this is actually good policy. But there it is. There I, can, can I just point out that that type of reaction, the whole, oh, if you support this, the scholarship one, for example, you're a white supremacist, that argument is increasingly less and less and less effective. And we saw this in 2021 when Youngkin won. I, I dug through the precinct data in Northern Virginia. The precincts that swung the most to the right were the least white precincts. Yeah. There was a direct correlation. As shocking as this sounds, the whiter the precinct, precincts are where people go to vote, right? The whiter the precinct in Northern Virginia, affluent, largely, extremely liberal is, is Northern Virginia. For those that don't live in Virginia, you know, su Southern suburbs of DC, right? The whiter the precinct, the less it swung from Joe Biden to, um, Glenn to, to Glenn Youngkin. The more racially diverse the precinct, a.k.a. the less white voters that lived there, the more it swung from Joe Biden to Glenn Youngkin. Yeah. And you know why? Because when you're a black or Hispanic or Asian, this is especially an issue with the Asian community. Because Asian Americans statistically have the highest test scores and they get statistically discriminated the most against when it comes to college admissions. When you're an, an Asian parent and you're saying, you know, I don't think it's fair that my child who has a 4.0 or 4.25 GPA yeah. is now getting discriminated against when it comes to their college admissions and already has a bigger hurdle than anybody else to overcome simply because of their skin color to get into a good university – now they're getting doubly punished because they don't have these awards that they can put onto their college application. And it was just taken away from them, despite the fact that they earned it. And then the response is, white you're, you're a white, not even you're a racist, you're a white supremacist. You have internalized white supremacy. I'm sorry that the only people saying that are white Democrats. They're, white liberals are the ones that are, are, the, are the most obsessed with this issue. And, and, and when you keep telling somebody like a Hispanic voter or an Asian voter that if you don't agree with me on any issue, especially anything related to education, that you're internalizing white supremacy, don't be surprised when they don't vote for you in the next election. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, 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 the point of all of this was, again, to, to show people how, how bad it has actually gotten in your public schools with respect to ideology, with respect to what they want to prioritize from curriculum to sports. Um, with respect to oversight 
or even parental knowledge. Right? Forget parental involvement. We're talking about just parental knowledge. I could have used other examples. I had a bill that just said, look, if you invite a speaker from outside of the school system to come in and speak to your class, you just need to send the parent an email notifying them on who it is and when it's going to be. That was it. That was it. Couldn't get one Democrat to vote for it. So th this, is, this is where we're at right now, all right? It is so fundamental. And don't let anybody tell you it isn't happening. Don't let anybody tell you it isn't happening because either they're the ones that are ignorant or they're lying to you in order to cover up what their actual intentions are. In every one of these situations, the left is attempting to claim as much control as they can and retain what they already have. Books, sports, notification to parents. They don't believe that parents are the best influence on their children and that they can raise them better. I mean, every situation they are advocating to retain the most power over children as they can. Every one. No, it's, and, it, and it, like I said, it was on display. I, I really thought there was a couple of these that would be fairly easy. Um, but nope, I think the most... The most Democrats who got to come over to vote for any of these was, I think, one or two. And, Nick, this is why we do this show, because at the end of the day, I'm starting to – we've been around the park more than once on – you know, Nick, you, you, you've you had many sessions here now, and, and both in the majority and in the minority with Republican and Democrat administrations. And I think that we're starting to realize – and I say we rhetorically – we're starting to realize that – you know, you're not really going to be able to convince people in the legislature to vote a certain way or not. Like there might there maybe at some point in the past that was possible. But increasingly, no, the legislature is where you go to battle. You have to just convince people outside the legislature and then get them to be active. So that way you can elect better people to office because you're it's it's almost like this quasi political religious conviction. Right. And, and you repeat the slogans, you repeat the buzzwords, even if they're completely true. The dogma. <laughs> you know, I, I, I support trans rights. What are trans rights? Oh, my right to legally be able to use my pronoun. Oh, so d you know that that entails coercive speech, yeah. right? No, oh, well, you're a transphobe. Yeah. Oh, because I don't support compelled speech, right? Yeah. Or the Leah Thomas case. That's another one on the trans issue. How about on the education issue with the sexually explicit materials or just any sort of school choice legislation at all? You want to defund public schools. Well, gosh, you're the one that's suggesting that if we give parents a choice, the public schools will be defunded. What exactly is that implying? Right? right. And so like, like over and over and over again, you come up with an idea or a proposal to solve a problem. And it's almost like you're just thrown a buzzword. Usually the buzzword is some sort of race-based response. Sometimes it's 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 a gender-based one. Sometimes it's a class-based one, right? But but they just immediately go to these buzzwords mm -hmm. in order to shut you down and not just, just diffuse the argument, shut you down. Say yeah. you're not worth debating because you're an evil, bad, horrible human being. And I personally am getting to a point where I realize like, you know, as important as it is for Nick to make the argument in the state house, it's actually more important that we make the argument outside the state house because influencing the culture is how we got to this point. It's it's politics is downstream from culture. It's not the one that influences culture. It's a one way, not entirely, but it's largely a one way street. The culture is what influences the politics. The people that are getting elected to the state legislature now on the Democrat side have been influenced by decades of culture that has been pushing this, which is why I said earlier, if you actually were able to corner some of these people and you ask them, do you honestly believe this? A lot of them would say no, yeah. but they're going to still vote this this certain way because the culture on the left is enforcing this this dogma. Yeah. Well, and I, I want to clear. I want to clear one of because I said in all these we only got a couple of Democrats to pass. The last one I mentioned that was the parental the the pass along the information to um, students. We did get 18 Democrats out of 48 to vote for that. Well, what a huge accomplishment. We got, 18, <laughs> we got 18 Democrats out of 48, and then when it went over to the Senate, they all voted no and it died. Yeah. <laughs> right in the subcommittee. But yeah, th this is this is where we're at. So look, this is what I what I want you guys to understand as you're watching this, as you're listening to this, is um, you know, part of part of the reasons, you know, why we, we come back and we tell you what's going on in the state house in Virginia is because it's not just Virginia. This is going on all over the country. What makes Virginia somewhat unique is that we actually are the only state house right now with a Republican House, a Republican governor, a Republican AG, a, Rep a Republican lieutenant governor, a Democrat Senate in a state that Joe Biden won by 10 points. In every other state house across the country, 
in every other state house across the country where you have a re Republican control over somewhere within the legislature, Biden won by a, a smaller margin, and usually it's a much, much smaller margin. So we're kind of in this unique position where we're seeing this clash take place in a very, very purple state and, and what's going on. And what it does is it gives you some insight on where they're at. Because if the Democrats in a state where they just got shellacked, they lost the House of Delegates, they lost the governorship, they lost the Attorney General's office, they lost the Lieutenant Governor's office. In a state like that, if they're still unwilling to vote for parental notification for explicit materials within your kid's classroom, if they're still unwilling to vote for any sort of dollars following the students, if they're unwilling to vote for any sort of legislation which would say, hey, we're going to protect women's sports, if they're unwilling to do it here in an area where they've got to be heavily competitive, I'm sorry, they're just not even, they're just giving you a preview into what it's going to look like going in the future. So listen, I want to thank you all for joining us. It's really great to be back in the studio. Thank you to everybody on the team. Um, I, I know it was difficult to work around my schedule and some days I wasn't able to be here, but I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I'm just glad it's not my podcast anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we get to slap the word Freitas back onto the show now. <laughs> but once again, thank you. Thank you for joining us. We've got some uh, exciting announcements yep. that are going to come up here uh, in the in the very new future. So stay tuned. And for all of those who are on Volley, yeah. again, I apologize that I have not been active on Volley. I promise you that's going to change now that I'm out of session. Once again... Our co-producer, everyone, Lydia, is has been here this episode. We wanted to give Nick the stage to kind of update us on everything that happened in session and go through these five points. She is here, and she's, yeah, we appreciate her. <laughs> Thank you for queuing me up, Hamilton. I've been loving listening to all this stuff. I think we're going to have a bunch of shorter segments that come from this. You guys can watch, go back and listen through to some of that. Definitely join us on Volley as Nick gets more involved. So glad he's back. So glad for his work he's been doing in Richmond. And thank you guys all so much for joining us today. All right. So once again, thank you very much for joining us. Please check us out on Volley in our community chat, and we'll see you next episode.